Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. Sometimes in our lives, there is famine. If we're talking spiritually, sometimes in our lives, we go through these desert times where it just seems like we're in a drought spiritually. Here's my advice to you. Do not sit around waiting for the food to come to you. Go and do something. Find where the food is. I think sometimes, sometimes that's how people end up in churches, in different churches. Maybe that's why you're here with us, because listen, if we're going to do anything, we're just going to give you the Word of God. Spiritually, your life will be filled with highs and lows, ups and downs, feasts and famines. In today's message, Pastor James encourages you to get up and look for spiritual food in times of drought, dig into God's Word, fellowship with other believers, and pray to God to bring you through the dry times. You won't always feel exceptionally close to God. In fact, there will be times when you feel rather far from Him. But God has promised never to leave you and will always make Himself known to those that ask. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Genesis chapter 42 with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. Here's what I know. God is good. That's what I know. That's what I know. Life isn't always good. Life isn't always fun. Life isn't always fair. But what I do know, God is always good. He's always good. That was Joseph's resolve there in, in Egypt. And it just so happens, two years later, the, that Pharaoh, the man in charge of all of it, has a dream. He has two dreams. He can't explain it. The magicians can't explain it. Nobody can clarify this thing for him. And the cupbearer finally remembers after two years, oh, wait a minute, I know a guy. I know a kid. He's in jail right now, but he interpreted my dream, and it came true. And so Pharaoh says, well, go get him. And Joseph stands before Pharaoh. He stands before all of his advisors. He stands before all the leading men of that day. And he says, here's what your dream means. And not that I'm interpreting it, but God has given me the interpretation. You want to know what's happening? God's given you a heads up, and you should be prepared for that. I love it when God gives us a heads up, gives us a warning, saying, hey, um, something's coming. You should probably be prepared for that. A fascinating thing has happened because we may live in, we live in this church age, this church, you know, kind of dynamic where churches are growing and flourishing. And we know that, man, when Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he, he established it's his church for a time frame. We went through this in Revelation, but there was a start to that and there's an end to that. There's a start and there's an end. And what we know is the end when, you know, the rapture happens and, and all that good stuff, um, there's going to be seven years that's going to happen, you know, seven major, you know, years that are going to, you know, happen with, on this planet. God's given us the heads up. He was gracious enough to say, hey, let me tell you what's going to happen, just so you know. He's also given us indications of like, here's how you'll, you'll know the days approaching when these things are going on. Uh, go through the, the Gospel of Matthew. He spells it out pretty clearly and just talking about, you know, there's going to be an increase in wars. There's going to be famine. There's going to be an increase in earthquakes and all these natural disasters. They're all being checked off 
And it's in one sense God saying, I'm giving you a heads up. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we've been given a heads up. Joseph tells Pharaoh, he's like, listen, God has given you fair warning, and that's grace on his part. There's going to be seven good years, but there's also going to be seven bad years. And Joseph lays out this beautiful plan to Pharaoh and all his men. And Pharaoh's like, so impressed by Joseph. He's like, okay, um, clearly there's nobody in all of the land who is, is as sharp as this young man or has a plan that is you know, as brilliant as this young man. So he immediately promoted Joseph to second in command, essentially. So from the prison, from the dungeon, in one day, he's bumped up to Pharaoh's like right-hand man, far exceeding whatever position he, he had with Potiphar. See, what he lost there with Potiphar, God multiplied by like 100 times with what he had with Potiphar. He just had to spend some time in jail because God was working on him to prepare him for the next move. So we've been walking through that, and we, we know the story. I think you know the story. You know how all this plays out, right? This is God has appointed Joseph to be there in Egypt, to, not only to save his family, but to save the world, to, to save the, the known world within that region. Eventually, there's going to be a reunion that has to take place. There's no getting around it because this famine that's plaguing Egypt is also plaguing Israel. And God is moving things, and he, he just knows how, to, he knows how to put this puzzle together. And we don't, always, we don't always know how it's going to work out, but I'm sure the guys in Israel are like, man, why? what's up with this famine? God, what are you doing? Why don't you hear our prayers? What's going on? They had no clue that God's like, no, I'm getting you guys to Egypt because I got a plan for you. And even after that, it doesn't end well for these guys. I mean, they go from like having prominence within the land and growing and thriving and all that stuff. And you got new pharaohs that end up taking over and they're like, you guys are a problem. And then they get enslaved. And then eventually the Lord, you know, the Lord delivers them in his perfect timing, in his perfect timing. But let's look at chapter 42. This is when we have this, uh, this, this reunion that takes place. Verse 1 of chapter 42 says, uh, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we, that we may live and not die. Here's the James Grizzle translation. Hey, get off your rears and go get some food. We're dying. You have, right, and at this point in time, he has 11 sons, okay? They have families and all that good stuff. All of these guys, all these sons, more than likely, are in their 40s, okay? Late 30s to 40s, for sure. Benjamin, the youngest, is probably early 30s. I always think of him when I read the story. He's like, he's like this little kid. No, he's a grown man too. And Jacob, there's Jacob saying like, um, hey, I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, we don't have any more food. Our livestock are going to die. And when they die, we will follow behind them because we are running out of food and supplies. Hey, why don't you guys do something about it? Why don't you guys, you're well, strong, able, young men. Why don't you guys go get us some food? And he's saying it in a way that like, it's not like it's, this is just some, like it came across the TV as like some, you know, you know, reader on the bottom or anything like that. He's like, no, you, you we're all aware of this. Bad things are happening. Famine's happening in the land. At this point in time, they were probably about close to two years into the famine. 
He's telling his sons, which we know the characters of these boys, I will call them, because so often they act like boys. He's saying, hey, why don't you guys do something? Why don't you do something? And, and Jacob himself, I mean, he, he's well advanced in, in age and in years. And it's almost as if they're sitting around waiting for dad to do something. There's got to be a point in time within our lives where it's like, you know what? Why don't you take out the trash, right? I'm living that. I'm living that reality within my life. I get kids, and they're getting older. And I'm like, you know, I'll take out the trash. But why don't you take out the trash, right? <laughs> Well-labeled little individuals. Um, we all understand this frustration. Um, my kids, are, they're, they're better than I ever was at that. I don't know how my mom survived. I don't know how I survived in my house, my mom not killing me, um, because I'm like more related to, to these guys in this, like just sitting around. I'm waiting for somebody else to do it, you know? So lazy. Um, praise God, my kids are, are not taking on that characteristic from me. Not totally. Um, but we all have room to grow. We all have room to, to advance within that. But here's Jacob, and he's got these sons, and he's just like, seriously? Nobody wants to do anything? You guys are just okay with us starving to death? Like, are you waiting for me, the old man of the, to, to go and find the grain? There's grain in Egypt. There's food for sale. Go to Egypt. Get down there to Egypt. So where does God back to these guys? Obviously, they're in a bad place, and, and they're in a place of desperation where they, they have to go and pursue where the food is. Sometimes in our lives, there is famine, if we're talking spiritually. Sometimes in our lives, we go through these desert times where it just seems like we're in a drought spiritually. Here's my advice to you. Do not sit around waiting for the food to come to you. Go and do something. Find where the food is. I think sometimes, sometimes that's how people end up in churches, in different churches. Maybe that's why you're here with us, because listen, if we're going to do anything, we're just going to give you the word of God. We're going to try to do that as best as we possibly can. We're not, we're not here to impress anybody. We're not here to do anything. We're here simply, our goal and our vision for Calvary Galveston is to exalt Jesus and to faithfully and simply teach his word. And in one sense, it's like to present bread, so to speak, as often as we can, as often as we can. Because I know what it's like to go through seasons within, my, within our lives where it's just famine and it feels like desert and it's just dry and there's just... But I also know I have to get up. I still have to get up and go find the bread. Go find the bread. If you're, if you, if you've, it's been time since you, you've been in the Word, open it up and take some time reading it. Find a podcast. There are so many podcasts of tremendous teachers, and I listen to them as often as I can. Ron Hint from Calvary Houston, a tremendous teacher. Skip Heitzig, I'm really big into Skip Heitzig right now. He's teaching through a series on Acts, and it is blowing me away. But that's like fresh food for my soul. Um, there's a ton of good guys out there that are just faithfully teaching the word. Find out where the bread is being dished out and go and partake of it. it does, it's not going to always bring you out of the desert immediately, but it will sustain you through the desert time. It will sustain. In the desert times, the famines, they don't last forever. They don't. But for, ja- for Jacob and his sons, I mean, they're at the point where it's like, we have nothing left. So what are we going to do? Are we going to just sit around? Or are we going to go? Go. Go find the bread. 
it just so happens that the only bread on the planet, so to speak, is found in Egypt. And they have no clue their brother is there. Because when they sold him as a slave, they didn't exactly know where he was going to end up or if he would even still be alive. But God is coordinating all of these events. All of these events. So he sends 10 of Joseph's brothers, verse 3, down to, to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, uh, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came, came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So it's not just them, but it's a whole group of individuals. Everybody is going to Egypt to buy bread. Jacob's like, listen, I'm going to send you 10. I'm keeping Benjamin here. And the reason why is because, well, he'll, he'll clearly explain this to us as we progress through this chapter. But Benjamin is his only son left to him from his dear and beloved wife that he actually loved and cared about more than Leah. He lost, he lost Joseph. He had two. He lost Joseph. And as far as he knows, Joseph's dead. And, and he's not going to risk losing Benjamin. I think, too, he probably doesn't trust his sons. Because the last time his son was around the other sons, he didn't come home. I think there's probably something implanted within Jacob's heart that he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to keep Benjamin with me. Because the last time I sent my beloved son out to you guys, he never came back. You can sense and you can feel probably some of the resentment within that family over this favoritism. Because it's there. It's there. But Jacob's like, I'm not going to risk it. You guys go get food. Benjamin's going to stay here with me. Verse 6, now, jo now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. I mean, he was put in that position, we could say, by Pharaoh. But ultimately, we know it was by God. God is the one who caused him to be promoted to that position. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And it's like, hello, dream number one. Dream number one that Joseph had concerning his brothers. And it involves grain. It all connects. It all makes sense. And you, you got to imagine what it's like for Joseph. His brothers walk into the scene, and they see this Egyptian man, because now Joseph looks like an Egyptian. He's clean-shaven. Although sometimes they would like glue fake facial hair on themselves, which I don't really understand. I mean, if you can grow it, grow it. Like, but they would like sometimes glue fake stuff on their faces. I don't get it, but whatever. Um, but he probably have some sort of you know makeup on his face as well. And I mean, he looks Egyptian. His brothers have no clue who they're standing before. No clue. But can you imagine what it's like for Joseph? Here's Joseph standing, and all of a sudden these ten dudes come walking in. He recognizes them immediately. And then they come forward, and then they bow down before him. And he, you know he's, and it's going to tell us he's alerted to that dream that he had where all his brothers bowed down before him. And he's like, whoa, wait a minute. The light bulbs are going on. And I think he kind of got it already, and he knew that God was, you know, was using him and had him in Egypt. I don't think that he understood that God was going to use this and every event in his life up until this point to almost really to fulfill his own word. And this is happening. His brothers are bowing down before him with their faces to the ground. And that's what you do to people who are uh, in high uh, positions or high authority. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But 
He treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Why would he do that? And I think the fact that he spoke to them at all is, is grace in, in and of itself. Like, if I'm there, I put myself in his shoes or sandals or whatever they're wearing at that point in time. Like, how would I treat the ones who betrayed me? This is your moment. And you know all the stuff is flashing back through his mind. And maybe it's not, because we know he had Ephraim, who, you know, God has caused me to forget all the things that have happened to me or the wrongs that have been done to me by my brothers. If it was me, all the things would be playing back in my brain. Like, yeah, you know, I I was sold as a slave. Um, You know what that journey is like for a slave? From Canaan to Egypt, it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. It's not first class, I'll tell you that. Then I worked in this household, and, and that was good, but then I got falsely accused of something, and I ended up spending a good portion of my life in jail, unjustly so. I could just imagine, like, you know, maybe that revenge thing stirring up with inside of him. I mean, he has absolute power and control to do whatever he wants to these 10 men, whatever he wants. And we'll see it in here. He's going to play with them. But if he wanted to call them spies, he could do that, and they would be locked up in jail, and they couldn't say anything. If he wanted them executed, he could have that arranged. He could have it arranged. He had total control of the situation. But he's going to treat them like strangers because he's not going to like do that thing where he's like, oh, hey, fellas, brothers, it's me, Joseph. He's, he's not going to do that because he doesn't know who he's dealing with. He recognizes them, but he needs to understand their character and where they're at. I heard this story last night as I was driving home from Dallas. We were listening to, my wife was playing a podcast from Skip Heidzik, and uh, so he was telling this story of this, um, this soldier who went off to war I don't remember which war it was, um, but he went off to war, and when he got back home, he, he called his mom immediately uh, to let her know that he made it back home safely and, uh, and to, to tell her that he, he was going to bring somebody home with him, a, friend, a, near, a dear friend that he had brought back with him who had saved his life on the battlefield. They were in a foxhole, and a grenade came in, and uh, this friend sacrificed himself and ended up losing one eye, one arm, and one leg. And so he's telling his mom, like, um, listen, can he, can he come and live with us? And she's like, well, he can come and stay with us, um, and, uh, you know, but we'll find him a good place to go. And he pressed the subject even more, and he's like, no, listen, mom, this, this guy, um, he, needs to, he needs a place to live. He needs to live in our home. Can he live with us? Is it going to be okay if he lives with us? And she would go on to say, um, you know, listen, um, he can stay for this certain amount of time, but he's going to have to go somewhere else. You're too young to have to take, take care of this person for the rest of your life, for their life. It, it's just far too great of a burden for you to bear and to carry. And he says, okay, and he hangs up the phone, and she's visited by military personnel with the sad news to, to let her know that her son has committed suicide. And the call that he had placed with her was, to, was really a testing because he was the one, as his body shows up in town there in the casket, he was the one missing the eye, missing the arm, missing the leg. And he was calling to see if mom was like, will I be accepted? Will I be accepted? Will I be cared for when I come back home? And in his, his process through that, he felt as though, I, I don't know if I'll be cared for. 
And so his way out was to take his own life. And she's heartbroken over that, obviously, obviously. Joseph, in one sense, is treating his brothers very cautiously and, and, and really pro, uh, probing at their hearts before he reveals himself to them because these are the guys who hurt him, the ones who are supposed to take care of him and care about him, be fully invested into this young man's life, the ones who are supposed to watch his back. They're the ones who are supposed to care for him. And, and this should be a good lesson for any of us because sometimes you know we deal with, with individuals who come through our lives and, and they hurt us. This is a reality of life. Sometimes people hurt us. Well, what are you supposed to do down the road? How do you handle that? You, you should never be a doormat for anybody. And if anybody ever counsels you in that way, I would advise against that. Now, it's not that you, know, you, you close them off within your lives and you build up all these walls or anything like that. You have to be cautious within relationships. We've all been there. We've all been hurt before. And sometimes when it's time to like seek out resolution and maybe seek out, you know, just reconciliation and all those things, my advice to you would be, be cautious. Don't avoid it. There should be forgiveness on our part. There should be absolute forgiveness on our part and all that stuff. But there also should be an element of caution if we're wise, if we're wise. I've experienced that within my life. I, I've been on the other side of that. I've, I've hurt others as well. And what I would, I, you know, I, I want to earn back trust. I want to earn that back. And I don't expect anybody to just freely give it to me without any question or hesitation. I, I think we, have to, we ought to be cautious, cautious in, in these types of things and really just trusting in the Lord. That's what we see with Joseph here. I mean, he isn't just like, hey, you know what? And he did forgive these guys. He did forgive his brothers. He's already forgiven them. But he's not so quick to say, hey, you know what? I forgive you guys. All is good. Come in here. Give me a hug. Let's talk. Let's catch up. He doesn't do that. He wants to understand, I've forgiven you. But are you even sorry for what you did to me? And he has every right to be cautious about that. Every right to be cautious about that. He has forgiven them. He has moved on. He has done those things. But there is a reason, I mean, why we'll quote this often. Jesus said himself, we ought to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And not just like, well, you know, they hurt me, but I forgave them. And, you know, I'm just going to, you know, just move on. You know, we'll forgive and forget. It's like, I'll forgive. It's hard for me to forget. But you know what? If I'm going to pursue a relationship it's going to be done with some boundaries put in place because I got to know. I got to know where you're coming from. I got to know where you're coming from. And that's really what Joseph is doing here. So if you're wondering like, well, why would he speak roughly to them? Well, you know why. You know why. These guys heard him. They heard him. So here's this, I mean, it's a tense scene. And, and again, I, there's so many things within the book of Genesis. We read through these stories and it's just like, yeah, okay, there's that, that happens. But when you really get into like, you know, the guts of these stories, so to speak, the, the bowels of these stories, you understand like we're dealing with real people. And there's a lot of good things that we can pull out from their examples in, in their lives. The beginning of the world has been a hotly contested topic for some time now, and the debate has caused many to dig deeper into their origin. 
The simplest answer is often the one that's correct. Our world and everything in it was molded and placed in its orbit by a supreme being, God. The account of this beginning and the first people to walk the earth is recorded for us in the pages of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. God's authority over nature and humankind has been evident from the start. He simply spoke and all took shape. God formed people to inhabit this beautiful planet, to care for it and for each other. Pastor James Grizzle has been taking the time to share God's plan for life from the pages of Genesis. And we hope you'll tune in again to continue the story. If you missed any part of today's message on Bread for the Broken, don't worry. You can find it now on our website, breadforthebroken.com. Listen through all of Pastor James' teachings that we've made available there, and feel free to share them with any friends or family you think would find it helpful. That website again is breadforthebroken.com. We're so glad you chose to spend time with us today, and we want you to know that we're keeping you in our prayers every time we produce another edition of this program. Each edition of Bread for the Broken is made with our listeners in mind, and we want to make sure our Creator is the first one we're all turning to. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Bread for the Broken. It's our prayer that every listener finds hope and new life in Jesus.